Welcome to Behind the Net Podcast. I'm Matthew, and with me is my co-host. Michael. Hi there. And today we have a very special episode. Very, very special. And uh, I say let's just get right into it. Um, Today we're very, very lucky to have a very, very special guest join us on the podcast. He's one of Canada's best sportscasters, and he has the perfect voice for radio, uh, if I may add. Um, After starting his career in Ottawa, he was a Blue Jays reporter with TSN here in Toronto and hosts his very own show for TSN 1050. Earlier this year, he made the move to Sportsnet as the new host of Blue Jays Talk for Sportsnet's 590 The Fan. Right now, he hosts the fans lead off with Ashley Docking and Mike Zygamanis. It's with great pleasure today that I introduce to the show, Scott MacArthur. Matthew, Michael, go easy on me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try our best. No, um, no hockey talk today, right? Is that, <laughs> is that the plan? It's going to be a tough one. <laughs> that, that would be a tough one. Um, I mean, first, uh, how's your day going? I know uh, for, for ov- obviously all you guys that don't know, uh, Scott was kind enough to kind of come down here after, uh, after a show, after work, um, over here to Ryerson University um, in the rain. It's quite a rainy day, but... That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, it's pouring out there. Uh, day's good. It's, it's been a usual day. I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, so that alarm always comes early. And I get into work at about 5, 5.10 with my extra large McDonald's coffee. So I, if you ever have to get up early in your career, I don't think there's a place that sells a larger coffee than McDonald's XL. So that thing is like thermos size. It takes me about an hour and a half to get through it. I finish it by like 6.45, 7 o'clock. First hour of the show is in the books because we're on the air 6 to 9. So I'm just waking up like halfway through the show. I probably shouldn't cop to that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's been a busy day. Obviously, it's been a hectic week in the NHL. And uh, the month of November 2019, boys, I, I think will be remembered uh, from the Don Cherry stuff to the Babcock firing, Babcock-Marner situation, and now this stuff with Bill Peters that has come out from his time with the uh, Rockford AHL team a decade ago involving Akeem Alou, uh, the Carolina Hurricanes allegations that have been made and what ends up happening here with the Calgary Flames? Because as we're talking, he has not yet been fired. Um, it's been a it's been a very eventful couple weeks. It's been a very eventful month yeah. for that fact. And um, we'll obviously get into that a little a little later um, in the show because we did want to talk about you. And uh, I mean, we're, we're honored to have you on the show. So, um, what what's a like, we want to know like what's a typical day on your show like? Uh, well, I, I kind of went through the morning. So I think one of the differences that being on a morning show presents is that a lot of the prep work is done the day before, the evening before. And unlike, actually, I probably shouldn't speak for News Talk Radio because I, well, I have been in News Talk Radio. I've never hosted a morning show in News Talk Radio. But, but it strikes me that one of the potential differences is a lot of the news that you would be talking about the next morning is made the previous day, not the previous evening. But in sports, the games are played at night. So we've got to get up early and do our show. We're off the air at at 9 o'clock in our case. And then we do a post-show wrap. We're usually out of there by 9.30, 10 o'clock at the latest. A lot of that is just visiting, too, after a quick sort of breakdown of 
how the morning went. And we go our separate ways, and then we're on a WhatsApp thread for the rest of the day, just bouncing ideas around, talking about what could be, what should be, what may be uh, for the next morning. There is always a nap involved at some point in the afternoon because I'm telling you, you do not get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and make it all the way to 10 at night without one. So there's a usually two-hour nap involved for me. Uh, sometimes that's noon to 2, 2 to 4, 3 to 5, whenever I can fit it in. And then it's important to be up and watching the uh, games in the evening. And as we sit here today, the Leafs and the Raptors uh, both play tonight. Leafs in Detroit and the Raptors are here against mm-hmm. the Knicks. So um, got to be flipping the channels and, and doing all that. So that's typically what a day looks like. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I've heard that you once worked on a radio show in Ottawa uh, covering the Senators, mm-hmm. and you had a co-host who was a former Leaf. Yes. Mm-hmm. What was that Mike like? Eastwood, actually, yeah. Uh, just doing the show in general? Um, yeah. Or? Yeah, just in general. and uh, I mean, just the whole situation of, you know, uh, you got a Leafs fan and a uh, and a Leafs, an ex-Leaf yeah. in Ottawa covering the Senators. So, Eastie, Mike Mike is an Ottawa guy, so at least, at least there's that. At least He's a local that. guy. Um, I love the city of Ottawa. I loved working there. Um, and a lot of my career was carved out on the news radio side where I was an anchor. But when I would uh, host Ottawa Senators postgame call-in shows, or as was the case in the 2010-2011 season, my final year there would host the entirety of the broadcast. And it was a big broadcast. It was a two-hour pregame show. I was responsible for our intermissions content and hosting and our two-hour postgame show alongside uh, Mike as well. I, I just I looked at it this way. You have a responsibility to the listener. If if you make any show you do about you. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that you can't be self-deprecating or you can't share experiences you have in your life that may be relatable to your core audience. I'm not I'm not saying that. But if you are hosting a show that is about you that is self-indulged it's going to turn people off Mm -hmm. so it was not for me to go on as the host of ottawa senators hockey on what was then the team 1200 it's now tsn 1200 and be a leafs fan Mm -hmm. and mike played for the maple leafs but he was not a leafs fan he wasn't a fan of any team because that's typically how it is for former players and mike's background was you know, that he bounced around. His best years were in St. Louis, but he was actually part of a, a notable deal in late winter 1995 when he was traded to the Winnipeg Jets, the now Phoenix or Arizona Coyotes Jets, not mm-hmm. the new Jets, but the Winnipeg Jets for Ty Domi. And, of course, Ty Domi had his uh, most prominent years in the NHL playing for the Leafs. So Mike was a Jet and a, and a Blue and a Ranger and a Blackhawk briefly, and I think he ended in Pittsburgh the year before the lockout that produced the first overall pick that turned out to be Sidney Crosby in 2005. So he really didn't have a rooting interest. We just we just talked hockey. We just talked the issues of the day. I enjoyed it a lot. It was great. I have so many wonderful memories, and Ottawa's a different market because it's a mid-sized market, um, and, and, and there was a lot of, like, close camaraderie amongst the media brothers and sisters up there so it's been a while but yeah it was a lot of fun Mm -hmm. did they ever realize you were a leaf fan 
I, you know, Eastie used to joke off air that he was going to out me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think just because I was around for so long and conversations would come up sometimes on the news talk side, we'd be on the radio and again, because I lived up there in the early 2000s as well. Like, I was up there for all the Leafs playoff victories over the Senators. So I think any diehard listener who was aware of me may have known, but I always made it a point that if you didn't know, I didn't want you to find out. I didn't want to offer anything, like, like, because I had a responsibility to the show. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do or say anything on the show that would, would give it away. I did get... In, in my very early days on Twitter, I did get a couple of tweets saying, ah, I'm a former Leaf and a Leaf fan hosting a Senator's radio show. What's this all about? So there were people who knew. Um, but I would like to say that um, that I never, I never talked about the Senators or dealt with the Senators in a way the Leafs fan would. And it's also important to recognize that when you are doing that job, some of the fandom gets sucked out of you. Like I covered Daniel Alfredson for a lot of years. It is impossible to hate to dislike Daniel Alfredson. It's impossible to hate or dislike Chris Phillips Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you deal with them. Now, if you're a Leafs fan and you remember the 2002 playoffs and they hit from behind, Alfredson, Tucker into the boards. Wow, just yelled into the mic there. That peaked. (laughs) Edit that out. Um, That produced Alfredson's overtime game-winning goal in Game 5 and put the Leafs on the brink of elimination. They had to go to Ottawa to win Game 6, and they did that, and then came home and and won Game 7. But if you remember those plays, you dislike Alfredson. But if you dealt with Alfredson as a person, or Mike Fisher, or any of those guys, they're impossible people to to dislike. Mm -hmm. I have to agree with that one, for sure. Um, Going off, like, uh, you got your start in Ottawa, of course, and uh, as you said, it's kind of like a mid-sized market. Um, when you made the jump back here in Toronto, what was that like, um, both for, obviously, for your job, and, and it's kind of like a homecoming for you because you are from Oakville. Yeah, so it was a homecoming for me personally, but that meant nothing to any listener or viewer mm-hmm. uh, because I had never worked in Toronto before. So as I look back, um, I actually was the only out-of-market hire from an on-air perspective for the launch of TSN 1050. Mm-hmm. And I had a former boss up in Ottawa who was actually consulting on the launch of the radio station. And so I had a I had an in. I mean, I feel like I got the job on meritorious grounds, but I had an in and, and that was important. And and so coming home, it was it was really it was nice um, just to be on the air in Toronto. I, I mean, I always tell the story that the Senators missed the playoffs that season. And if you guys are diehard hockey fans, you'll no doubt remember the name of Corey Clouston, mm-hmm. who was like a weird dude, but he was the Senators head coach that year. So they missed the playoffs that year. He was fired on the tarmac, I believe it was, before the flight home from Boston after the final game, or at least he was told he wasn't going to be the coach again. And and so we signed off. That was a day game. We signed off at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on the Saturday. I went back to my apartment, had packed up as much of my stuff as I could, drove to my parents in Oakville on Sunday morning, slept there, obviously, and was at Richmond and John Streets at 9 a.m. Monday morning meeting my new colleagues at TSN 1050 to prepare for the Wednesday launch 48 hours later. So one day I'm in Ottawa, two days later, 
I'm in I'm in Toronto and I'm walking into the old much music building and I'm going, oh my goodness, like this is this is crazy. So it was good to come home because uh, sadly my maternal grandmother passed away three months later after my my return from home. She had not been well, so it was nice to be able to be home and see her in her in her final days. And it was nice to launch my career in the only city in this country where I felt like if I could succeed in Toronto, it was a true sign that I'd made it. Um, I know your your two favorite sports to talk about, obviously, are baseball and hockey because Blue Jays and the Leafs. Uh, well, my 49ers you... are 10-1, and one, so oh, we're, is... we're talking a lot of NFL these days, too, <laughs> and I can slip it in. I would definitely love to talk Shows about me, team. remember? That is true. <laughs> uh, what made you interested in hockey and baseball, and I guess to an extent football as well? Uh, baseball, I, like, I almost have no memories of a life without an interest in it. So um, my parents are, are both baseball fans, um, and we're both baseball fans prior to the Toronto Blue Jays existing. And my parents were married in 1974. I think they met in 71 or 72. And just by chance, they were both Yankees fans at the time. My dad grew up idolizing Mickey Mantle in the in the 50s and early mm-hmm. 60s. And my mom is a diehard, or was more so, I mean, a little less now, but was a diehard Leafs fan. Loved Bob Pulford and those cup-winning teams of the 60s when she was a teenager. And and so they, they commiserated over that and... And, and whatnot. So they just, they raised my me first, and then my brother came along four years later in a, in a sports-loving household. So I have no recollection of a life without baseball or hockey. My first uh, memory of, of Blue Jays games was in 1985, which was the first year that the Blue Jays made the playoffs. So I'm six years old. It wasn't until I was 15 or 16 that that the Jays were bad. So I, because they got good in '83, they got great in '85, and they contended every year to some degree until the 1993 World Series and then '94 and the players' strike. They sort of fell off a cliff. I had no concept up until 15 or 16 years old of what life was like cheering for a bad Blue Jays team mm-hmm. on the con. Uh, on the on the opposite side, I had no concept until I was 13, almost 14, in 1993, of what life was like cheering for a good Leafs team. <laughs> the Leafs in the 80s were terrible. Now, everybody made the playoffs, 16 of 21 teams. And if you finished last in your division, you missed. So occasionally the Leafs would, but the North Stars or the Red Wings also sucked back then. And so it would be the Leafs or the North Stars or the Blackhawks who would miss the playoffs. Toronto would typically get in and lose in the first round or whatever. But Willie Upshaw was my first favorite Blue Jay. Rick Vive was my first favorite Maple Leaf. My love for football and the 49ers came along a few years later in January of 1989. Uh, The 49ers were a dynasty back then. And so Joe Montana and then Steve Young and a lot of their great players, Ronnie Lott, Roger Craig, um, just I could go on down the list. Mm-hmm. So I, I really don't know a life without a love of sports. It's not like I turned 21 and found found a love for sports. It's just always been part of it. And I've, I've, I've heard you uh, say that you basically grew up in the, at the Rogers Center, the Sky Dome. Yeah. Um, and you have a lot of great memories there. I think you told you said on the Jeff Blair show that uh, you were there at the Carter home run game. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of your greatest memories, obviously growing up in that era of uh, Blue Jays baseball? Well, my... 
my dad was hired as the uh, chief financial officer of Skydome a year and a half before it opened. So I actually have memories of the first two Christmas parties at, I attended at Skydome were 1987 and 1988, where we are all bundled up to the nines on what would become the field with an unfinished roof. And so I was at the first ever game on June 5th, 1989. The Blue Jays lost to the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers were an American League team back then. Fred McGriff, my favorite player after Willie Upshaw left, hit the first home run in Skydome history. Two nights prior to that game, I was at the uh, with my entire family, um, mom, dad, both sets of grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. We were all at the official party where they peeled back the roof and the rain poured in because they wanted to show off the roof so they didn't worry about the weather, closed it back up. The late Alan Thick was was the host of that gala or party, if you will. So that was I was there for that. I was there for the 1992 World Series clinching game, watching on the big screen as, the, as they got it done in Atlanta. And then I was there for the Carter home run game. And I went to a lot of regular season games. My, my dad, um, in, a, in a, high, a high position within the stadium, what was then called the Stadium Corporation of Ontario, because the building at the time was owned by the, the government of Ontario, his job was essentially seven days a week. So sometimes what he would do is he would say to my brother, uh, call up a friend, each of you, and uh, I'll drive the four of you in. I've got some work to do while the game is going on. So he would, he would put us in a, in, a, in a suite that was not open that day, and the four of us would just sit there and watch the game. And two and a half, three hours later when the game ended, my dad would come down from his office and gather us up and we'd go home and he'd have gotten some work done and we'd have watched a baseball game. So like I was extremely fortunate, extremely privileged, but that's what I mean when I, I talk about uh, growing up in that building and um, you know, all four of my grandparents have, have passed on. And so when I walk into Rogers center now, I, I always picture the, the 92 world series and watching on the big screen or, being in the building for the Carter home run game, and, and they were there. So, you know, my dad having worked there but leaving in 1997, my grandparents having uh, since passed away, I feel like there are a lot of sort of familiar and friendly and loving ghosts when I walk into Rogers Center. So it's always special for me to do that. That must, there... have been a, mm -hmm. oh, that, that must have been a great time to kind of grow up in, obviously, because in our lifetimes we, we mm -hmm. kind of just experienced our first uh, championship here in Toronto. But, uh, of course... The Blue Jays were um, obviously had the city on another level at that at that time. Well, and I, I remember saying to R.A. Dickey in 2014, uh, it turned out to come true in 15. But they were the, the 2014 Blue Jays had a great May, and had surged out to a division lead that they would obviously go on to relinquish because Baltimore won the division that year. But I remember saying to R.A. Dickey during that surge, I said, "Look, R.A., I I was at." those games in the early 90s I said it will be different this time and what I mean by that is even better even better because there was an energy like you guys being the age you are when it's the first time that a team contends it's like oh my god this is actually possible and that 
you know, they knocked out the Windows restaurant in center field and opened up that WestJet flight deck where wherever your ticket is, you can wander on down, grab a pint, stand up, visit with friends, watch an inning. Like, it, it turned into the destination start of your weekend. Let's go to the ball game on Friday night, throw a few back, hope for a Blue Jays win, and then wander up to King West or Queen West or wherever it is you go. Like, it became a destination for that period of time. And then sure enough, in those playoff games, that, that crazy seventh inning that culminated with the Bautista bat flip, the intensity in the building, it was shaking. I mean, it would, those were... The World Series years were special, amazing. The peak, the climax. But I will remember, and maybe it's a little recency bias, but I will remember just as fondly, particularly 15, 16 as well, but 2015... Just the energy and the fact that an entire generation of baseball fans who had not seen a good Toronto Blue Jays team finally got that opportunity. Yeah, I would definitely say that uh, somebody who was watching the Blue Jays and like pretty much lost interest around 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. you watched that team and like, oh my goodness, baseball's amazing again. I can't wait to watch these guys uh, come 10, 10 for years to come, mm-hmm. but turned out it only lasted one extra year. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope they get back there someday. I think they might get back within the next two years. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Yeah, we'll talk about that more later. I think we should uh, jump into hockey right now. I know we've been, I know Scott's been talking about this pretty much all uh, all week. All, <laughs> but it's uh, been a yeah crazy week. It's been a crazy yeah. week. Uh, but yeah, we, I mean, obviously we have to talk about it here. Um, so I mean, your our first re- uh, question for you is uh, obviously with the Bill Peters, I guess, um, incident that um, allegations with. Akeem Elu. Um, what was your initial reaction upon hearing, uh, obviously, that, that whole story go down? Well, I I mean, my first thought was sympathy for Akeem um, because I was the host of Ottawa 67's hockey games on the local Rogers community television station in Ottawa back when Akeem stood up to Steve Downey and some of his veteran Windsor Spitfire teammates over that hazing stuff, you know, wanting to jam four or five naked 16-year-old boys into the bus bathroom for the trip back to Windsor after a, after a road game. And Akeem said, I'm not doing that. And he was branded as a bad teammate. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to follow him Terrible. the rest of the, the way. And, I mean, I... I'd like to say that I was surprised, but I wasn't. I mean, if a if a if a black hockey player goes through his career or her career without hearing that denigrating awful word, they're quite fortunate. Um, we are not we are not anywhere close to where we need to be in terms of being empathetic, understanding of others, uh, viewing others. Um, as the same, as equal, uh, seeing beyond color. Although I, I, I don't like talking that way because I, I think some of our differences are what make us unique and what's fun about existing. Exactly. I mean, like I don't think we need to whitewash or blackwash or pinkwash or like whatever. We don't need to wash everything into the same. Our differences are to be celebrated and not denigrated. But I just, I just thought it was so unfortunate, uh, but unfortunately not surprising. Do you think that's why it took so long for the story to come out, even though it happened like in 2010? That he 
is probably at a point where he feels like he has nothing to lose as a 30-year-old who was playing in the ECHL last year and is a free agent now? Probably. And there's a lot of opinion out there on that disease we call Twitter. Well, why didn't, why didn't he speak up at the time? And I always think to myself, you know, the people who ask that question, yeah, as if you would have been tolerant, indulgent, willing to listen to what he had to say at the time, as if the timing of, of his reveal is the issue here. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with it. It's got everything to do with the fact that some people just think that how things have always been are how they always should be. I want to hear about it. Just go out and fight and punch yourselves in the face and hit each other from behind and score some goals and entertain me for two and a half hours. Colin Kaepernick, go out and throw a football. And, you know, if you can avoid those headshots, good for you. But if you get your brain mashed up three times every Sunday, at least I'm being entertained. America. Like that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just people, people don't... A lot of people don't think beneath the the surface of right? course there's there's definitely the the crowd of people who want to kind of believe that sports is not political but i think i think we all have to know that they they, 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 do, they do intersect uh sports and politics a lot the anthems are played before games of course i think that's the uh, that's the biggest uh example i always say as well and um for me uh, like of course as a person of color um growing up in hockey i think we could tell that uh for me, I, I do feel like progress has been made, but there's just so much more progress that still needs to be made. And, and um, just, you know, when, when these things are coming about, um, you know, I can only kind of sympathize, of course. that um, Like, did you have bad experiences? I personally didn't, but I know uh, just just being in a locker room where I'm kind of obviously I'm the minority, it's, it's a different feeling um, of comfortability with uh, a lot of certain things. I, of course, didn't have the, um, I guess I didn't have the talent to play at a high level. I, I, I played for a few years. But you but never heard it, any silliness coming from the stands or anything like that? Either. No, fortunately yeah. not. But um, I, I grew up in Scarborough, so it was a little more diverse, or at least I, I would expect that the, I guess the, uh, the other kids that played with me um, were exposed to a more diverse population in their daily lives. But um, when it comes to the arena, um, there's definitely that, that feeling of, you know, you're, you're a little more singled out than when you walk the streets of Toronto. And um, just seeing this happen at the, at the more professional levels, really, um, I guess it does really hurt because um, growing up as a kid, you don't want to think that, um, you know, as a minority, um, uh, you don't want to think that if, you know, your dreams of making the NHL, um, are going to be like this. Mm-hmm. You don't want to think. You don't want. You don't want to think that way. And uh, I think that's where, like, even even if it's the professionals, a lot of people are like, you know, the uh, the, the the upper leagues. They they're going to be hard on you. It's going to be hard. But I think sports should be a safe space either way. You get into sports because you love it, not because it's, and you make it a profession because you love it, not because you're well. But you should, you know, uh, uh, and I agree with you 100. percent But it, it's also incumbent. Coaches have jobs to do, which of is course. to win games, of and course. and you have got to maximize and extract the most you can out of your players and you need to push people and that can be done in a variety of ways that can be done with encouragement that can be done with punishment for inappropriate 
behavior or um, you know, if somebody is is sabotaging the team, or if somebody's not playing particularly well, maybe you bench them or you put them up in the press box for a game. Like all of that stuff is within the realm of what what would be accepted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But minimizing someone's humanity um, based on the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, the way they may comport themselves, uh, their interests. I mean, if I hear another damn story, I'm talking about a white kid now, I hear another damn story about how Dougie Hamilton likes museums. Is that why he, do, apparent, is that why he doesn't fit in? Because he likes to go stare at dinosaurs on road trips in, 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 in museums? O- okay, what, is he supposed to be some drool-on-your-chin dodo head? Like, I mean, you know, I get it, but people are different. Yeah, And different people tend to be... Um, ostracized may be a strong word, but sometimes that is the appropriate way to describe it. Different people can somehow sometimes have a, a more difficulty relating in a fishbowl, like a clubhouse or a, a locker room where it's, you know, a macho 20 to 25 guys. We got to go. We got a job to do. Uh, we're making a lot of money. There's a lifestyle we're expected to lead, even if it's perceived Um, away from the rink all of that stuff I mean it's but sports is kind of the same as everything else I mean I did make the point on the radio show this morning I said I said for anybody who says hockey culture is being torn down right now like a stick of dynamite has been put right in the center of it and lit and it's going to explode let's remember this is one of 31 NHL head coaches Mm -hmm. like the hockey world is not under attack here it's not under attack. It feels like it's under attack for people who tend to feel that way because it is so dominant in the news cycle right now. But it is not as if half the league's coaches are being called to account. It's just one guy at this particular time. And it comes on the heels of the Don Cherry stuff, and it comes on the heels even more recently of the Mike Babcock, Mitch Marner stuff, which, well, distasteful, is not anywhere near the degree of severity of the Bill Peters stuff. Do you think there's more coming? Like more stories similar to what happened with Akima Lou and to an extent Mikhail Jordan? That's imp- impossible to know, but the, the floodgates, have they opened? I, I do know, I think it was Darren Dreger of TSN reported last night that the National Hockey League Players Association, the Players Union, has asked players, and I don't know if they've asked them, um, they may be being voluntold, um, have, has asked players to say, look, you got a problem with your coach, stuff's going on, verbal abuse, physical abuse, some combination of both. You come to us and we'll work through proper channels. Mm-hmm. They don't want players going to Twitter. And my only hesitation, and I hope it's not a threat, I would not accuse the PA of threatening its own, its own players, but my only hesitation is if you keep it in-house, then are we really going to get solutions? I mean, if it is the culture that is perpetuating some of this silliness, some of this madness, and it is kept in-house, then will there be anybody in-house who is held to account to, to solve these problems? I don't know. Do you feel like that's kind of... Uh... I mean, I don't want to say controlling, but do you think that's a way of the NHL to kind of obviously control the situations that um, players want to come about? 
before it gets to the media, of course. Well, sure. And I, I mean, the National Football League is a prime example of of a sports league in, in, in North America, uh, probably more effectively and, and more so than any other league that just puts a cap on things. Um, the, the Kaepernick anthem stuff, which was a protest of systematic and systemic police brutality in the United States, which is an undeniable reality for so many minority kids, predict, particularly African-American kids. It was not in any way a, 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 a disrespectful um, a, a, a move meant to show disrespect to the military or to the flag or to the song, anything like that. It was it was to bring attention to something, but the NFL let that one that one got away from them a little bit. But are we are we still talking about it two or three years later? Kaepernick's kind of in the news, out of the news, in the news, out of the news. But the league has effectively has effectively shut that conversation down as well. So that's what these leagues do: um, crisis management, damage control, and situations like this so it wouldn't surprise me if some players who are out of the league who have nothing left to lose maybe share some stuff but it i have a hard time believing that someone who is playing today is is going to speak up i have to agree with that because uh there's this whole mindset just not just with hockey but with the many sports in general of keeping things in the locker room that's been manifesting for years and years i tend to think that uh, we're getting to that point where that has to change to a greater extent well there's definitely some things that have to stay in the locker room like uh tactics and all that stuff but like whenever there's something going on behind the scenes and it's causing distress to one or many players or even management that cannot stay uh compromise yeah well and i think like if you if you talk to any reformed bully, that person will tell you that their behavior didn't feel good while they were doing it and didn't make them feel good in the aftermath. There might be an immediate rush or an immediate high, of a feeling of power, which effectively I think is, is a, is a uh, it fills the void for the lack of power, the lack of control you feel you have in, in your own life. So there may be a, like a, a fleeting moment or five minutes or ten minutes where you, where you feel that, but then you walk away feeling pretty crappy. And so when a coach embarrasses a player um, as a psychological tactic, I mean, look, if you play like crap, if you play like crap, and you're responsible for two or three goals against because you played like crap, chances are you're getting called out in the next day's video session. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm, I'm talking about sort of the psychological warfare, the assertion of power. I, I, I like to talk about the difference between demanding respect and commanding respect. When you demand respect, you can typically mistreat people and say, well, I have the title of head coach or general manager or owner or this or that. I have the power over you. Therefore, you must worship me. You must respect me because I am your boss. I am your father. I am your whatever. I am your superior. You will respect me. But commanding respect is true leadership where you involve people and people who are subservient or subordinate to a leader are more than willing to be held to account. Because they see examples of being included in the process through time, 
Um, and they see examples of the leader holding him or herself or their self accountable mm-hmm. as well. And so in those environments, it's far more healthier and, and people have a, have a tendency to thrive. Exactly, because we can't just uh, hold back uh, things, not make people feel uncomfortable to speak out when something's going on, because we live in a society, I know I hate to say those words, but we live in a society where people are being more comfortable to speak out when there is uh, situations where they feel they're discriminated against Mm -hmm. or they're being abused psychologically or physically. Mm -hmm. And... We're getting, we're not, I'm not saying that we're, we're at that point, but we're getting closer to that point where we're becoming more accepting of other people's ideas and understandings, but we're still not getting close to that. And especially in sports, it's particularly hockey, where things like this continue to manifest and seeing what the NHLPA is trying to do to keep things in house is only going to continue to manifest that for years to come. At least yeah. that's what it seems like. Yeah. If it is ill-intended, that that's problematic if if they intend to take any allegations that they receive from players seriously and confront teams or present teams as it may be more appropriate to say with uh, the claim or the allegation or evidence of such and then there's like a collaborative effort to to stifle whatever the misbehavior is that is going on then then that's good but if this is just a, an attempt to put a band-aid on the tumor, then that is a very, very bad thing. And more of this stuff will come out over time, especially as players either feel like they have nothing left to lose because they've retired from the sport or they've moved on to other things, or if they're in such a place in their life where it's like either I talk about this or I lose my mind. Like, you know, so yeah, I mean, I think I think it's all about creating better environments for people and and, I, you know, the other thing I said about hockey culture where this is not just in hockey. Um, sports typically is a, a reflection of life, a metaphor uh, for life. There are problems like this across the board in all industries. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are problems like this in some families. Mm-hmm. Like, where I'm not even talking professional. It's personal, too. Uh, you know, we've all encountered people who uh, have a misplaced sense of self-worth in our lives and bless them but uh, so often they're wrong for sure this is uh obviously it's a it's a problem of power imbalance that that happens not just in sports but obviously in uh workplaces in general the different different things like that um we we've heard um i guess uh flames gm brad Treloving basically say that they're investigating i could play the clip here so last night during our game in pittsburgh we were made aware of the social media tweet uh, from Akeem Ali. Allegations of this nature we take very, very seriously. This is a subject matter um, that has no place uh, in our organization. And so the the magnitude and and the seriousness nature that we take this allegation is is very high. But basically... um my uh, my my next question is what 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 do the flames do about this? What do you think that they that their next plan of action should be? Oh uh, well, I think I think, and again, I mean, I have to leave room for me to be incorrect on this. I think there is no conclusion other than Bill Peters is is fired for sure. But 
I think the reason is we sit here midday, Wednesday, November, the uh, I'm always bad with dates. You guys know what it is. What is it, the 26th or 27th? It's the Wednesday, whatever. Yeah. Um, the reason we sit here and Bill, Bill Peters is still employed is because there's there's legalese that needs to be taken care of. So I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but let's just say hypothetically the Calgary Flames are trying to fire Bill Peters with cause such that they don't have to pay him a dime remaining on his contract. Bill Peters would say, yeah, but the incidents occurred in Rockford, Illinois 10 years ago and Raleigh, North Carolina at least two years ago I work for you now, and this hasn't happened here, so how can you fire me with cause? Like, I imagine there's some legal complications being worked through right now, which is why Bill Peters is still technically the head coach of the Calgary Flames, even though he will not be behind the bench tonight when they're in Buffalo. It'll be uh, Jeff Ward, the assistant coach. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think the Flames can only fire him from here, only because... Yeah, I, I think, think that's where it's headed. For sure. I think... Uh, Let's say they don't. I think they, it's already kind of made that much of an impact where it's it's to the point where, you know, two players, two former players have uh, basically uh, come out and, and kind of confirmed uh, Alou's uh, story um, and, and kind of confirmed that uh, Bill Peters said that. Now, obviously, they're still investigating, but I think at this point, there's so much um, backlash about it that, that if the Flames don't fire him, um, again, they're not, they're not as well, they're not... Um, they're not doing that well this season. So that, that that adds another layer to the reasoning behind firing him. But I think at this point, like you kind of can't go back from this because it's it it'd be too so much, much of a distraction for sure. Oh, yep. that too, that too as well. Um, it's for sure distracted. It, it's become a big distraction. And I think there's a lot of uh, noise about it. And at this point, you just can't go back from it. And just to quickly add before you answer the question, um, Rob Brindamore just said that, uh, the physical abuse that Bill Peters did with the Carolina Hurricanes most definitely happened. And that's already with Mikel Jordan saying that this Bill Peters did this and a few other players in the organization confirmed it. Well, and there were reports uh, last night that Rod, Ron Francis, who's now heading up the new Seattle franchise, uh, was aware, uh, was made aware by Carolina's leadership core at the time that stuff was up. So it's, it's, it's just a, it's a messy situation and it's it's like that old scene in the wizard of oz right pay no attention to the man behind the curtain um because if you do you see that the man behind the curtain is not really a wizard he's just a dude dressed up like a wizard um you know in this case we idealize hockey we idealize all professional sports and we are getting at a peak uh, or a peak into its uglier side for sure Oh, uh, just just a quick question. Um, let's say Bill Peters does get fired because I think we're heading down that road where he is going to be relieved of his coaching duties. Do you see any scenario where he gets rehired by an NHL team within, let's say, the next two or three years, or even in general? I do see a scenario, but I, I think it's it's one that is the road is paved with contrition and with effort either you know preferably privately although i would imagine some of it would have to be public as well because public opinion would would matter in this situation there would have to be effort made to to reach out into different communities and to like i 
you know, when Kevin Pillar uh, screamed the three-letter F word at an Atlanta Braves pitcher a couple of years ago, I, I remember I, I was not an openly gay man at the time, uh, publicly. Uh, but I remember speaking about it, saying, look, you know, this does not have to define who Kevin Pillar is, but here's what I think he should do or some of the things I think he should do. And John Lott of The Athletic wrote a great piece on it. Uh, Kevin did not do this seeking attention, but John Lott later in the season walked up to Kevin and said, look, did, did you ever do some follow-up on this? And Kevin opened up about the fact that he did go uh, speak to an LGBTQ organization and even more importantly, listen where he actually sat down and listened to youth talk about the experience of being a queer kid and what's what that's like. And some, of course, would talk about how their families had rejected them or they were out on the streets or this happened to me or that happened to me. Here's what I was exposed to. Like, it's a learning experience. So does this have to define Bill Peters, the human being, for the, for the rest of his life? It can in your mind. Um, it doesn't have to, in my mind. But there is work to be done, and honest, contrite work on Bill Peters' part to be done. To just kind of go dormant for two or three years and wait for the dust to settle and then show up in a new city, uh, that would be too hockeyish for me. I, I'd, I'd like to see and know that Bill Peters is... Has, has taken the time to try to learn about other people's lives. I mean, I think even some of the worst things that ever occur, um, you know, I'm not talking about like the worst things that ever occur, like people killing people and stuff, but you know what I mean? Like some of the worst scenarios or the ugliest scenarios like this one can lead to growth opportunities if that person is willing to grow. For mm -hmm. sure. And uh, I guess how does this change, uh, I guess, coaches – and coaching tactics and things like that moving forward uh, for the NHL. How, do, how does how does I guess the the, the role of coach change if it, if it mm. changes at all? Yeah, I I mean, I, has it has it changed a little bit anyway? Because I mean, Paul Maurice, the head coach of the Jets, former Leafs head coach, was quoted yesterday. We ran the clip this morning on the show talking about how his assistant coaches have pulled him aside at times and said, "Hey, Paul, you've got to you've got to adapt. You've got to adjust." in this particular area, the way you're handling this situation. And so it's, I, I think your guys' generation, which you can speak to far better than me, um, is, is very much about the why as much as you are about the how and the what. So here's what to do. Okay, but why? Like, why? So that sort of communication is important. And you're also uh, coming of age in, a, in an era where like differences are recognized for what they are, which are differences, but they're not like they're not societal hemorrhages where we, we can't get past that somebody's gay or you know we can't get past that somebody's brown or black or white or yellow or you know whatever. So, I think coaches, most of whom are my age, I'm 40, or my age or older, and most of those coaches are older, um, are being forced to adjust. What I'd like to believe is that you guys as young people 
grow in, into middle age and that you don't lose the track you're on in terms of the society you're trying to build. Because as, as life goes on and we start making money and start having families, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, our priorities can change. And sometimes we become a little more insular and we're a little bit just a bit more worried about that tax cut than we are that broader social issue out there. And that can affect how we vote, et cetera, et cetera. I just hope that I just hope that that ideal uh, permeates through your lives and circling back to coaches that the coaches your generation produce because you because those coaches will have come up in your era are more sensitive and more aware of of some of these issues within within the game mm-hmm. exactly do you have any? so um, um oh you can go <laughs> okay i was going to say like this is a perfect uh, transition to mike babcock because this the story of uh, him make, making Mitch Martyr during his rookie season make the list of uh, work ethic between uh, hired hardest working to laziest mm-hmm. is uh, something that you'd probably see happen with a coach in the early 2000s. And Mike Babcock originally started in the NHL around that time, and he's been around for quite some time. But there have been stories coming out that his coaching tactics were starting to wear thin on a bunch of players in Detroit and to and in Toronto as well. So I guess that's my next question. How do you think Mike Babcock has to adjust as a coach and as a person if he wants to get back in the NHL in some capacity? Yeah, I mean, I don't know Mike Babcock at all. Uh, so I, I can't really speak to the type of person he is. I'm, I'm only uh, aware through second or third hand stories or just what we've all read about, about the type of guy he is. I, I guess my question specifically on the thing with Marner is the aim has to be, and again, I'm giving everybody, Babcock in particular, the benefit of the doubt here. The aim has to always be to maximize what that player can do for you, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're trying to win hockey games. And it feels to me like it's an older sort of theory, like, well, you know, kind of screw with a kid's head and then have him do something and then show a couple players in the locker room kind of divide and divide and conquer that way where it's you know you're almost playing out of fear. I I, do, I don't I am not motivated by fear in in my life. Um and there are different types of fear like if my house was on fire, I would run faster out of that house than I would run almost anywhere else. Like I'm not going to run fast on a treadmill because I'm lazy. But if my house was on fire, I'd run out. That sort of fear motivates me, the fear to save my life. But I am not motivated to win a hockey game because a guy in a tie behind the bench is screwing with me psychologically. And we all have people in our lives, um, none of whom need to be named at this point, but we, we've all encountered people in our lives who have, have, have tried to play that game um, on multiple occasions. I'm thinking of these people now as I as I speak this sentence, and I'm not thinking of them in high regard in hindsight. People I have worked uh, for or with, not all of them, most of them have been great, but there's a couple that come to mind. And, and so I, I guess my question for Mike Babcock would be, what did you think you'd accomplish? Now, he might come back at me and said, well, I don't know if you noticed, Scott, but like, Mitch Marner's a pretty good hockey player and had 94 points last year. So if this really, quote, messed him up, it didn't affect his, his play on the ice. 
And my response to that would be is I, I don't really know if that matters. I think Mitch Marner would have got 94 points playing with John Tavares last year, whether you'd screwed with him mentally or not. I can't prove a negative, though, so I guess we can debate that in, in circles. I just think I just think he's got a he's got a I, I I always believe you can hold people to account. People want to be held to account. They want to be responsible for their own actions. And if they respect you, they are more than happy to be held to account when they know they're wrong or when they know they need to play better or when they know they need to be a better teammate or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So I think you just got to shelve that psych 101 bs and just be a real authentic dude be mm-hmm. authentic i could answer that question in two words i'm sorry i, I rambled on that's okay. be authentic be real that's the answer exactly yeah 100 percent. and mike babcock always preaches being a good man being a good pro and obviously all that stuff about, in, a, uh, in a voice that's either real or not you decide <laughs> well i mean that have you ever met another canadian who talks like that um, oh no that pronounced like is, maybe Bob and Doug, you guys are way too young, but Bob and Doug McKenzie on SCTV, maybe you're staring at me like I'm crazy. That was a pretty good. <laughs> that was a pretty good show back in the day. Um, John Candy and all those guys, a lot of really good Canadian actors. Martin Short, Rick Moranis came out of that. But anyway, I'm done digressing. They put on hoser accents. That voice cannot be real. <laughs> I mean, he is from Saskatchewan, and we we tend we're trying to argue if Saskatchewan's even a real place. So, <laughs> well, my, um, my maternal grandparents were from Saskatchewan and didn't talk like <laughs> they didn't talk like that. Well, the Swedish chef from the Muppets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's a question. Um, we kind of know that um, obviously it's not just off that incident, but we kind of got a general sense after the after Babcock was fired that the Toronto Maple Leafs were kind of uh, I wouldn't say done, but they were kind of ready to move on from Mike Babcock. That obviously we saw in. Uh, media scrums afterwards they were kind of ready to embrace Keith uh they kind of had this new energy with them um I don't know if it's from that incident or if there was a history of incidents with Mike Babcock or anything that we haven't heard of but do you think that um I guess Babcock's actions uh or maybe the way he coaches do you think that might have played a a role in obviously with the young guys kind of giving a hard time with the contract negotiations do you think that Uh, he kind of no I don't know about I don't know about that I, I do think that, like, my favorite Leafs coach of my lifetime is the great Pat Burns. Uh, may he rest in peace. But if you if you go back and look at Pat Burns' career, did he last in any of his stops more than three or four seasons? Mm-hmm. Like, Mike Babcock was the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs for approximately one full year longer than Pat Burns was the coach of the Maple Leafs. Burns was the coach of the Leafs. And turned it around immediately. 92, 93, 93, 94. Those were the back-to-back Western Conference final appearances. There was a lockout at the start of the 94 season. So January of 1995, a 48-game season came into effect. The Leafs made the playoffs that year, but went out neither the first or the second round. And then he was fired in the middle of the 95-96 season. So he lasted three and a half years, really more three years if you factor in a half-season loss to a lockout. So some of the best coaches, it just it, it wears out. It wears thin. Um, they go in, they have their effect, they turn things around, or they, they organize things where it's been a schmoz and a complete disorganization before, and then it's like, I can't listen to this anymore. 
And could you imagine Mike Babcock grinding on guys mm-hmm. every single game, every single day? Some guys may um, also feel like they weren't being put in the best positions to succeed, or weren't weren't being put in, you know, maybe the offensive scheme or like whatever the case may be. Like, we could do this a different way. We could do this better. So maybe they view that that way, and he loses a little bit of credibility. And then it's the grinding on you. Go, go play good. Go play better. Good, good, good. Like, and it, and 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 they're questioning the authenticity of the accent. And it's like, and and he, so it just could be all that stuff. And after a while, you're just like, I'm exhausted, man. So maybe change for the sake of change. Even shelving the Marner incident from his rookie years, change for the sake of change is good. And here's what I know. They've, they've beaten Arizona and Colorado. And even if they were 1-1, one one, say, in those two games, my you don't need a radio talk show host, a newspaper columnist, or a TV talking head to tell you this. It is apparent that the body language, that the tone of voice, and that the things that they're saying have all improved for the better. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs to crap on Mike Babcock any more than's already been done on his way out the door. That, those behaviors tell me more than somebody saying, Mike Babcock lost the room. 100%. Mm-hmm. I can see it. I can hear it in what is being said and just in the way those players are carrying themselves at least over the last five or six days. 100%. I think it just came down to the Leafs needing a change. I think it was just the time for a change. There's no other way to put it. I think I think they just need to embrace a new positive outlook almost. Yeah, and I mean Sheldon Keefe has a has a very detailed background as as well. Um and so he knows what what it's like at times to go through difficult periods in life and he's got himself back on his feet. He's 39 years old. So as coaches go, he's very young. Presumably, he can relate uh, far, far, far more to 21, 22, 23-year-olds. And he'll bring a different style of play. And like guys like Tyson Berry have turned a corner right away. Yep, 100%. And um, I guess my we'll, we'll just wrap that, that part up. But uh, I guess the last thing I want to ask, of course, uh, on that topic is on the topic of the coaches and the incidents. Um, what do you think that the NHL now has to do moving forward. Um, I kind of like how, uh, I mean, Michael tweeted out yesterday, when will it become uh, a fact that hockey is for everyone actually, you know, actually is factually correct. And uh, what does the NHL have to do to actually get there? Well, I just think time has to pass. I really, I really think that's. Uh, the, I come back to what I said about your guys' generation, which is, I hope that you don't mm-hmm. shelve the ideals that that you carry with you. Um, when you do see differences, I hope that those differences are celebrated as opposed to maligned or oppressed. Um, and and so it's 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 really just going to be time passing and different people ascending into positions of power, positions of influence that that enable them to affect change. And I, I think one of the in, things that is incumbent upon, particularly the, the and I count myself as one of these now, the, the, the white middle-aged male crowd is not to just say, yeah, we're for equality, but also to actually look at it and, and say, are we defaulting to hiring white men 
in all situations without even recognizing that we're really doing it. Like, can, can we can we begin to recognize? Can we begin to see troubling patterns, the subconscious stuff, the unspoken stuff? It's very easy to say that I, um, you know, that I oppose the use of the N-word or that I, I don't like that group of people over there who are marching with Confederate Nazi flags. That stuff is obvious. It's the less obvious stuff uh, that needs to be dealt with. And I'm all for meritorious hires. I think merit is extremely important. And there will be times where a white male is the best person for the job. <laughs> that should not be a problem uh, to, to hire someone like that. But if there is um, someone else of a different color or a different orientation who is as qualified or more qualified and they are losing out, because of something subconscious, we need to bring that to the conscious level and and do away with it. I remember Kyle Dubas saying something along the lines of hiring a more diverse staff is what's going to help grow the game. And that if you're only hiring white people, white males, you're leaving out a lot of good candidates. Well, by eliminating women, and he's you know brought Haley Wickenheiser into the fold, which is just an awesome thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm stunned she has time. <laughs> She's in medical, in medical school in Calgary. It's like, <laughs> I guess Haley's just hopping a bird and coming to Toronto uh, every now and then to work with some players. But, uh, but bringing her into the fold is, is great. Like, if you're eliminating women, then you're eliminating 50% of your potential hiring pool. Like, okay, uh, I guess. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's still an old boys club in a lot of ways. And... Hopefully by talking about it, and even more importantly, by being aware of it, that will that will change. I'm of the mindset that we are going to eventually see a time where there is a female head coach, maybe even mm-hmm. a female Me general too. manager, and we're going to see diverse uh, staff, like potentially uh, a colored coach and more colored players on the bench of diverse backgrounds. I'm of the mindset that we're going to eventually see that. But that's probably not going to be for a while. I think that, so too. which is unfortunate. Yeah. Because it's, I really want to see some that. time. It's going to be some time for sure. But I think this generation, more than past generations, this generation is the generation where you are seeing more diversity in the sport, and it's just going to take, of course, a few years for that to kind of bloom, I guess, and, and kind of take shape into uh, hockey's landscape right now. So uh, with time, I think we'll definitely see that, which is it, it's it's good. That's that's definitely a positive. Um, mindset to or kind of positive outlook to keep keep in mind mm-hmm. yeah and I mean my favorite football team the San Francisco 49ers uh, have an offensive assistant coach by the name of Kate Sowers who is not just female but also a lesbian and uh, you know I mean the, the the 49ers are one of the top offensive teams in football this year. I mean, especially their run game, and she 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 is contributing to that success. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just think the more people knock down barriers, the greater the likelihood that there will be more space for people to follow. It's sad that we're still experiencing firsts, or close to firsts, or that even if the firsts don't really kick the door down, um, that, that, that 
there needs to be a next person and a next person and a next person. But I, I would imagine and hope, try to be optimistic that we are getting there. For sure. I agree. Um, we'll just I kind of push the, the, the talk now back to the uh, Leafs. Just quickly, we'll wrap up the discussion. Um, the Leafs are facing Detroit tonight. Hmm. Um, what do you think are the keys to winning, uh, to being the Red Wings? I just think, well, first of all, the Red Wings stink. So, like, I looked at it. They beat Arizona. They beat Colorado. And given how Buffalo's played in the month of November, the Leafs have a five-game win streak at minimum staring them in the face here. Go to Detroit. Take care of business. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the home-and-home home with Buffalo Friday afternoon, U.S. Thanksgiving, so it's like a 4 o'clock game in Buffalo, and then back home on Saturday night. Get the job done. Um, you know, they're obviously focusing on uh, puck possession. Uh, they've changed some things in terms of their defensive coverage in their, in their own end. And I think you just got to go out and play. They're feeling free and easy. They've had an off day on Sunday and two good practice days since the win in Colorado. They got back into their own beds before flying to Detroit yesterday. The bottom line is you line up those two rosters on paper, there's no doubt who the better team is. Mm -hmm. Just go out there and play a hockey game and and win the hockey game. Since there is a back-to-back coming up, this is the perfect time to bring this up because a big talking point for Leaf fans have been the implementation of goaltending usage on back-to-back nights. I know this this first one coming up is the same team twice. But in general, how do you think the Leafs should approach back-to-backs with their goalies? Geez, I, I don't know if there's a... I, th- I, 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 think, I don't think you have to have a firm and hard opinion on that. I, I mean, Mike Babcock clearly did. But do you, do you give the backup the, the first game? every now and then do you give the backup the lesser opponent on more nights than not on whichever the front end or the back end that is do you prefer your backup playing at home versus on the road Mm -hmm. so if you've got you know a back-to-back where you're home once road once whatever would like i just i i I just think you can play it by ear i i don't think like babcock never really made a verbal declaration he just developed this, or maybe always had this pattern, but but this pattern was just very apparent over his four-plus seasons with Toronto, three-plus seasons that mattered because the first one was a complete and total write-off. But but like, okay, well, we just, we just know that um, Curtis McElhinney or Garrett Sparks or Michael Hutchinson's playing the second game. I just think you go on feel, you go on – the data that's presented to you, I, I don't think Sheldon Keefe has to have a, a hard and fast rule. I think he needs to communicate with his goaltenders, communicate with the goaltending coach, and and let these guys know. Because you got you got two with Buff Friday, Saturday, and then your next two games are back to back. You you got you got the Flyers in Philadelphia next Tuesday, and you got Colorado at home on Wednesday. So I think you just talk to the goaltender and you say, Okay, I'm giving you this one, I'm giving you that one, and you go from there. I really just think it's about communication and not having any sort of like ideal that you need to hold to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Do you uh, do you think the Leafs can turn their season around yes. at this point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, just based on what you saw, it was they they held on in the final two periods in Colorado. But some nights that's what it's like. That that Avalanche team is very good. They built a, you know, they recovered very quickly from a first minute goal of Nathan McKinnon. 
and and then they scored four in the first period and were able to hold on and and, and get the job done. But but based on the results of the first two games, based on the comportment of the players, what you're hearing them say, how you're seeing their body language, they, they very clearly have enough skill uh, to be a to be a very good team. I don't know if this is a cup contender, but I certainly think it's a playoff team. It should be a playoff team. And if they win the three games that they have remaining this week, tonight Detroit and the two with Buffalo, the way that I feel they should, uh, then they're in a pretty good they're in a pretty good spot. The, the teams like Tampa have some games in hand and stuff, but that all comes out in the wash, and you got to take care of business when you play those teams, when you play your rivals. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's just quickly move on to the Blue Jays because obviously there's it's the off season, but there's always something to talk about. Um, it's free agency season right now. Um, the Blue Jays have yet to make a signing, but there has been talks about them going after starting pitchers. I believe there's one who played for the Twins, Jake or. D? Odorizzi. Odorizzi, thank you. Um, Who do you think the Jays should be targeting this offseason? I know he's a big name, but there's plenty of others. Odorizzi's actually off the market because he accepted Minnesota's qualifying Mm -hmm. offer. Mm -hmm. So he's going to make, uh, I think the number is $17.8 million this year on a qualifying offer. So good for him. Yeah. Um, It's a one-year deal, but uh, he ain't suffering. I mean, imagine that, eh? Like in six months, you clear $9 million after taxes. That's a pain in the ass. Poor guy. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I think the Blue Jays, I think the Blue, Blue Jays should. I'm not saying they will be. I think they should be involved in, in, in some of these big fish. But it just, the, the, the tough thing is with them is you feel like you're defeated before you even sort of get the ball rolling on this stuff. It's like, well, there's no way Garrett Cole's coming here. There's, no way that Steven Strasburg is coming here. And you wish that it wouldn't be that way. Um, but Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins are working within the the framework of a budget. We don't exactly know what that number is. Uh, but what we do know from an on-field perspective is if this team doesn't get a whole hell of a lot of pitching, uh, things aren't going to improve. And I know that there's this sense of optimism that 2021 or 2022 is, is going to be a time where the Blue Jays really turn it around. And I'm, I'm like, you show me the pitching. Mm-hmm. Show me the pitching, and I'll believe you. But I don't see it yet. Exactly. I know Nate Pearson's down there. I know they have another couple of arms in the lower levels who are a couple years away that they're high on. But until those guys get here, number one, and then two, prove they can do it in the big leagues, we haven't seen it. Exactly. And despite having many great young players in Vladdy Jr., Bo Bichette, uh, Kevin Biggio, Guriel, and many others who I could list and go on and on about, they're not at that point yet where they can. I can comfortably say, hey, they have the pitching, they have the, the bats, they have the defense, they can uh, surprise. So I guess my follow-up question then is, what are your ex- realistic expectations for the Jays in 2020, at least as of right now? 70 wins. 70? Yeah, I don't think they're very good at all. Um, you know, I, I think they've got a good young core of position players like the guys you mentioned, Vladdy Bichette. Um, you know, is Kevin Biggio going to be able to jump that batting average up 20 points? I mean, if you're a 250 hitter, if you're if you're a 340, 350 on base guy hitting 210, imagine what you are if you're hitting 240, 250, or you're 370, 380 OBP. I mean, that would be amazing. I, I'm just not prepared to um, 
anoint Danny Jansen and Reese McGuire as the catching tandem of the future. I have yeah. Yeah. Uh, serious doubts about Teoscar Hernandez, although I acknowledge that there's there's upside there. Um, Randall Grichuk is as meh a baseball player as, uh, and I'm not really interested in him hitting 30 home runs when he's not a contributor for effectively the first month and a half, two months of the season. And then on the pitching side, we've discussed that. So I, I, I do not think this team is anywhere close to a 500 baseball team is currently constructed. They've got a ton of work to do this offseason to even get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic right now. But, but again, I'm willing to have my mind change based on the work that Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins could do this offseason. But I think they'll be fun to watch nonetheless because sure. of all the young guys that are on the roster for a full year. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but again, winning is what brings people to the ballpark. Absolutely. I mean, baseball's a, a game over 185 days. You play about 100, you play about, you play 162 games, and it trudges along. And, and there will be exciting moments because there are even for the worst teams in baseball every season. Um, but and there will be exciting moments involving these players. But in terms of win-loss, uh, I don't think the Toronto Blue Jays are, are going to be particularly consequential if they're somewhere around the status quo roster-wise. Roster-wise, easy for me to say, heading into spring training. For sure. And, um, I mean, the, the Blue Jays are rebuilding, so we'll, we'll, we'll just have to see how they do as time goes by. Um, we want to wrap up soon but we just have a couple more questions about you if you don't mind uh answering quickly um we want to know now that you're with uh obviously the fan 590 what any any cool stories from there uh any any uh funny stories from uh your time hosting there so far this year geez i mean i, I don't know if there's any like haha <laughs> stuff any uh, uh any like memorable memorable things i guess no i mean it's just been it's been um an honor really to to be part of the morning show. Um, you know, I grew up listening to the Fan 1430, which became the Fan 590, which became Sportsnet Radio, the Fan 590, which became Sportsnet 590, the Fan. So every now and then I have a moment where I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I'm on the show that I that I grew up listening to. Uh, I work with, with great people and for great people. And... I mean, I will look at 2019 in general as a as a major uh, major tectonic shift of a year in my life when I changed companies. I moved from TSN to Sportsnet in the very early part of the season, and uh, I came out of the closet in July, and that's afforded me uh, freedom in my life. And I've met some really interesting and unique and fun people. Um, just by opening up myself and and yeah so I think when I'm an old man uh, older than I am now uh, I'll look back on 2019 as being a pretty huge year when you look back from your career uh, dating back to TSN and even before that was there an interview that you did or maybe uh, an athlete you've spoken yeah, to something yeah like exactly you've spoken to that yeah. really stands out in your mind as something that says you know what this is probably one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Summer of 2018, TSN 1050, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf came to town with uh, Ice Cube's Big Three. So Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was a Denver Nugget in the mid-1990s, um, a convert to uh, 
Islam. I believe in his college days. I could be wrong on that. It might have happened before college, but it was he was a very young man when he converted, and uh, he refused to stand for the anthem. And I remember thinking, you know, what's this guy's problem? Back in the mid-'90s, I was an ignorant teenager from Oakville. I mean, I didn't hate Mahmoud Abdul-Aruf, but I didn't understand what, what this was all about. And I remember him coming to a compromise with the NBA where he would stand for the anthem, but he would cup his hands in prayer as the anthem or anthems uh, were playing. And I started that interview, I did, as you could say, maybe it was a tactic, but I, I meant it authentically. I meant what I said. And I certainly didn't owe him an apology. He didn't know that I'd thought negative thoughts. It probably wouldn't have surprised him, though, because he got so much negative feedback for, for the decisions he made. But I started that interview by apologizing to him for thinking what I thought when I was 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. And I just, I watched his body language go, like he kind of was, and then we proceeded to talk for like 15 minutes about activism and about the state of the United States and the state of North America right now and some of the challenges, some of the issues that um, different people face, minorities, whatever. And it was really an enlightening conversation. And... Uh, there were a couple of interviews I did. Uh, another one was with the, the late Roy Halliday upon the announcement in early 2017 that he would be going into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame that year. There were a couple of interviews that I asked my technical producer at TSN 1050 to MP3 and email me so that I never lost them. And it was the Halliday interview and uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf. Wow. That's incredible. That's, yeah, that is, that's great. Kind of even moving off that, just how you said, um, of course, as you apologize, you kind of you kind of opened up a little more. Um, do you have any advice for someone looking to break into this industry or someone who's even any tips for anyone who's just, uh, you know, trying to be either on the radio or just journalism in general or sports media? Do you have any advice for them uh, or tips at all? Well, if you're breaking in, it means you're young and probably coming out of school. And I, I would say that the answer to any reasonable non-demeaning question is yes. So if you are asked to work a Saturday overnight shift somewhere, don't roll your eyes and say, I'd rather go party with my friends. Um, if, you, if you want this, you'll do it. Um, so I would, I would say that is important. And I would also say be a good teammate to everybody uh, because people fan out across the country end up in different parts of Canada working and the more friends you make and allies you have the more likely it is of course provided that you are good at what you do and you're developing the more likely it is that you're going to have people vouch for you that can help you take that next step in your career so it's really about uh, applying yourself understanding and accepting that you will work very odd hours you, sometimes a lot of hours mm -hmm. for very little pay, mm -hmm. little pay. That's, that needs to be understood. You're not walking out of here and making a hundred grand. Like it just isn't happening. And if it does, you're, you're the exception to the rule and congratulations. Um, I won't view you with any hint of bitterness, but, <laughs> but, but so just understand that it is ambition 
in the very early days that will see you through even the most frustrating of times. And also understand that if you don't feel ambitious to go through that slog, it is not a sign that you are a failure. It just means that this might not be for you. Mm-hmm. And that's okay too. This mm. has been uh, incredible. Yeah, uh, it's been incredible. I think that's the perfect spot to kind of end the, our podcast after today. Um, but again, Scott, we want to really thank you for coming out today, being on the podcast, really um, really giving us a lot of insight about, about a lot more than just sports. And uh, we really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you so much for coming down here. Yeah, Matthew, Michael, thank you. Happy to do it. Maybe thank- you'll invite me back. Of course, yeah. <laughs> of course, we'll, we'd be happy to. I mean, uh, it's a long season, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Go Leafs, go. And go let's go Blue Jays. <laughs> Go Leafs, go, let's go, go, Blue, go Jays. Blue Jays, and we kind of neglected them a little, uh, the Raptors, but let's go Raptors. <laughs> They're fun to watch, man. They are. Um, yeah. So with that, we are Behind the Net Podcast. Tune in next week. Um, I'm Matthew. I'm Michael. Uh, just a spoiler, we have something pretty exciting coming up for you guys, so we won't want to spoil it. And uh, we were here with Scott MacArthur, and uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. See you guys.